Well, welcome to all of you who are here with us. Maybe you're a member of the church and have been with us for a while. Maybe you're visiting for the first time. It's good to have you with us. If you're joining us online, it's good to have you with us as well. Uh, If you have a Bible, and I hope you do have a Bible this morning, you'll open up with me to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20. I didn't already get a chance to introduce myself. My name is Trevor. Um, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, it is a joy to be with you on this Sunday morning and uh, to be in God's Word together to hear from Him. Today is the Lord's Day, and so we give it to Him. We have uh, been in the book of Judges together as a church, and I am looking forward to where we will go this morning. This morning, we will finish the book of Judges. And so uh, if you have been hanging in there in the midst of the darkness and you are looking forward to the light of God coming into the world at Christmas, next week starts Advent. And so it'll be a wonderful transition from the darkness of Judges into uh, anticipating the light of God in Christ in our Advent season. All right, Um, let's begin here. We are sometimes, maybe you are, I have been fascinated with societies that completely collapse. There's a sort of interesting fascination about visiting, you know, the Maya ruins in the Yucatan and and seeing these places that were once inhabited by people who are no longer around anymore. Or maybe it's the Easter Islanders or the great medieval city of the great Zimbabwe. Throughout our history, we have always had a strange fascination with societies that completely and utterly collapsed. They're not just something in the ancient past. We see them in our own day as well. We think here of Somalia or Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia. And occasionally when you'll read the newspaper, you will hear people talk about particular cultures or nations or societies that are on the brink of total collapse such as Nepal or Indonesia or Colombia. And so it is normal to uh, look around and to see that there are times when great civilizations are built and then utterly fall apart. And we may not always see that uh, in the world. Um, If we want to make it more personal, sometimes we see it in our own lives and homes. Sometimes things seem to be going really well. And then one day we wake up to our own families on the brink of collapse. We are aware of hidden sins and secret you know, decisions and conversations. And uh, a skeleton is let out of a closet. Addiction is made real. And we discover that all is not well in our homes. I recognize that on the week of Thanksgiving, every year when I'm speaking with people, I meet some people who are very excited about being around their family and other people who, through a false smile, try to give the impression that they are really looking forward to being around their family. It's no mistake to say that life is hard and family is hard. And so the question I want to wrestle with this morning is, what can we learn from the Bible or maybe judges specifically to help us avoid collapse in the way that so many in the past have? Now, I'm aware that too often these questions can be oversimplified. And at the same time, I do believe that what we will look at this morning really does tell the story of all of the challenges that we face in life. 
Last week, if you joined us, you joined us for maybe the darkest story in the Old Testament. You joined us for a story where in which we looked at a Levite, who's a sort of priest, who has a concubine, which is kind of strange, who ends up handing her over to a mob in order to, for her to be sexually assaulted repeatedly through the evening, which results in her death. It was very dark. And that instance last week at the end of Judges 19 will lead Israel to a complete and total civil war. The Levite, last week, if you remember, we ended the story very strangely with him taking the body of his dead wife and chopping it up into 12 pieces. And he sent it to the tribes of Israel because this Levite believes that what happened to his wife, a crime horrifically committed by the Benjamites, needs to be dealt with. And so he rallies 400,000 men to show up and join the cause. And they want to know the details of what happened. They want to know what they're getting into. And so last week, if you read that story or you were with us, we waded into the darkness. And as we looked at that horrific story last week, this week we pick up in part two of that story and we get to see what happens from that moment into the rest of Israel's story in the book of Judges. And so now we pick up with the Levites, surrounded by 400,000, informing the people of what it is that has been done. And we'll dive through this text, walking through verses, chapters 20 and 21. We'll do selective readings that I think will really give you the essence of the story. So we'll begin with Judges chapter 20, verse 4. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said... I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. And during the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. And they raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine. And I cut her into pieces and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. When you're reading the Levite who is now beginning the chapter 20 and 21 with the retelling of what happened in chapter 19, if you're paying careful attention, you'll notice that some things are kind of amiss. The Levite thinks that he himself is the victim. He's not. He tells the story in such a way as to say that he's at this home of a man who took him in and that these men showed up with the intention to kill him. That's not entirely true. They wanted to sexually assault him. He moves pretty quickly to the next phase of the story and what involves her actually being attacked and ultimately killed. But he leaves out the important detail of how he is the one who sent out his concubine to be so brutally attacked by the mob. And then he ends by saying to sort of Israel, who's gathered around, what are you going to do about it? What's interesting about the beginning of this story is how many half-truths exist in his telling of it. There's a massive difference between telling the truth and selective truth-telling. 
We can cause a lot of trouble by choosing to make ourselves the victim rather than actually telling the whole truth. When I was in seminary, we had a professor who told, uh, told a story to the class, and the story was about how he was fired from the church. And he told it in such a way that the whole class was pretty frustrated at the church leaders for how they had mistreated him. He had walked in expecting a big raise, and instead they told him that they were letting him go. And I was sitting there amongst my classmates, equally joining in on the, yes, churches can be dysfunctional kind of posture and rhetoric. He continued to tell the story in such a way that got us as the, as the class sort of frustrated at what the church can often become. And he mentions walking home to his wife and opening the door and telling his wife that he had been fired. And his wife looked him dead in the face and said, good, you were a terrible youth pastor. <laughs> And our whole class opened our eyes in utter shock as we couldn't believe what she had said. And we all felt discombobulated coming to the reality that he intentionally, for illustrative purposes, wanted us to hear the story as though he was the victim. Because he knew that we would tell the, he could tell the story in such a way that would lead us to earn sympathy. Only once we had all of the color filled in did we realize that maybe actually that church leadership wasn't so bad. The reality is, I don't know why we do this, but we tend to make ourselves the victim when we tell stories. When we are mistreated, it is a lot easier to run to someone and to say to them, let me tell you about how I was mistreated, rather than the true story of let me tell you about what I did. It takes humility to be able to be honest about the ways in which we are involved in the kinds of things that we sometimes experience. Well, the Levite certainly tells the story in a way that leads himself to being the victim. And if you're reading the story, you're sort of frustrated because Israel is now preparing to go to war on a bunch of half-truths. It's never good to go to war on a bunch of half-truths. And so we can understand from the beginning that this isn't going to go well. The Levite ends by saying to Israel, what are you going to do about it? And Israel's response is, all right, we're going to go to war. We're going to go after the Benjamites who committed this horrific act. So they desire the perpetrators, and they go to Gebeah, and they say, bring us the men who committed this atrocious evil against the concubine. And the Benjaminites say, no, we're not going to do that. We'd rather fight. So Israel brings an entire army. And Israel decides that they're going to go into battle against the Benjaminites, and they, they do this while assuming that God is with them. In verse 18, we pick up the story where right on the precipice of a battle, an inter-Israel battle, we get this in Judges chapter 20, verse 18. Israel went up to Bethel and they inquired of God and they said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? And the Lord replied, Judah shall go up first. Notice that the Israelites don't go to God and inquire about whether or not this is a good idea in the first place. They assume they have God's blessing. And God gives them the very first words that he gives in the book of Judges. Judah shall go up first. If you've been following in our Judges series, you know that the book of Judges begins with God's people who are called to go into their inherited promised land and to drive out the Canaanites. 
and Judah is to go first. So in many ways, what happens here in Judges chapter 20 mirrors what happens in Judges chapter 1, but everything is different now. See, in Judges chapter 1, God's people are unified. In Judges chapter 1, they are after and pushing out Canaan. In Judges chapter 1, they are led by Joshua, a great hero of the faith. In Judges chapter 1, they have the promised blessing of God. Here at the end, we see things are very different. They're not united, they're divided. Israel is at war with itself. They're not attacking Canaanites, they're attacking themselves and the tribe of Benjamin. They're not led this time by a great hero of the faith named Joshua. Instead, they are headed by a lying Levite. And rather than having the promise of God, they assume that they have God's blessing. Have you ever prayed built on a premise that wasn't entirely fleshed out yet? Sometimes we assume the blessing of God. We don't seek the blessing of God. Too often when we are given opportunities, our tendency sometimes is to think that if it's something that's right in front of us, it must be something that God wants us to have. And rather than turning to God and saying, God, we have no idea what's best for us, so therefore would you lead us and guide us, sometimes we say, God, should I take door number one or door number two? Assuming all the while that these are the two doors that God wants us to walk through. One of the lessons that we can learn here in the book of Judges is that rather than assuming we have the blessing of God for everything that's in front of us, we ought to petition God for his blessing. And this is something that Israel doesn't do. So God says, you want to fight? Let Judah go first. And 22,000 Israelites die in the first wave of the war. Well, Israel's feeling demoralized, right? They're kind of going, wait a second, we thought, we thought this is all going to plan, like this feels like justice, and yet, is it? So they gather up again to God in verse 23. They're licking their wounds after losing 22,000 men. And in verse 23, it says that the Israelites went up and they weep before the Lord until evening. And they inquire of the Lord. And now they're asking God a different question. Their posture is in a different place. And they said, God, they said, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? And the Lord answered, go up against them. Now, it's a little tricky to see here in the text, but I want you to pay attention to the order. The first question they ask is, who should we send first? The second question, you can sense more hesitation. And here they're saying, well, we know we should fight, um, but but, should we continue to fight right now? Is Is that the right thing to do? And God's response is, go for it. In the Hebrew, it renders this sort of, God, we should fight again, right? And God says, Go for it. That's what you want. And they're a bit confused because that's what they did yesterday, and it resulted in the death of 22,000. So they go back into battle against the Benjamites. And remember, the, the Israelites have this big army, but they don't have the high ground. And so in the second wave of battle, Israel loses another 18,000 people. Well, now they've lost 40,000. They're completely desperate. They're 
totally broken, and they come before God once more in verse 26. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel. The whole, now everybody's there. The size of the people who have come before the Lord has gotten bigger. They're all there. And they sat not just weeping like last time before the Lord. They're weeping and they're fasting that day until evening. And they're presenting burnt offerings and they're presenting fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. And here's a little side note. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. So here they are. They're near the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that they asked, shall we go up against to fight? So shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? This is the first time where they ask God, wait, or should we not do this at all? The first time that they are even open to the possibility that what they are doing is not what God wants them to do. And if you've been following the book of Judges, we know repeatedly that the great challenge of Israel is that they are continually doing what they think is best. So this is the first time that they say, or not, maybe we shouldn't do this. And God's response is, go, for tomorrow... I will give them into your hands. Israel finally has the blessing of God, and they go to the Benjamites and they ambush them. They draw out the tribe of Benjamin. They destroy the city. And 600 Benjamite men flee into the hills where they are hiding and totally surrounded. Israel at this point is victorious but they're unsatisfied with the victory. They get greedy. They get overzealous. And in verse 47, it says that while 600 of them turned and fled into the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed for four months, the men of Israel went back to Benjamin and they put all the towns to the sword. They killed everyone, including the animals and Everything they found, all the towns they came across, they set on fire. In their rage and foolishness, they decide to add to the victory. And so what they do is they completely destroy all of the tribe of Benjamin, save for 600 men who are in, hidden in the field, in this, in this, um, in this hill. This is 50,000 people are killed, including women and children. And you get to the end of Judges chapter 20, and you're asking questions like, wait, what about the Levite and the concubine? Wait, what, what, what's going to happen with these 600 men? What's going to happen? Wait, 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 wait. What happens when you have a tribe that only has 600 men? You have no tribe in the future if you have a tribe that only has 600 men. Wait, hold on a second. There are all these promises that God has made to Israel and promises made to even the tribe of Benjamin. This isn't looking good at all. What's going to happen? And as we roll into Judges chapter 21, we get the answers to some of those questions as the book comes to a close. But before things come to the close, things get even stranger. 
The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mitzpah. So all of Israel remembers this oath they had taken. And what is the oath? They said, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. Uh-oh, that's a problem. You have 600 Benjamites left. And all of Israel is saying, well, we made this promise before God that we weren't going to give any of our children, any of our daughters over to the tribe of Benjamin. So the people went to Bethel, verse 2. They sat before God until evening. They raised their voices and they wept bitterly. And they said, Lord, God of Israel, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? They ask, why has this happened? And you should be reading this thinking, are you that self-unaware? God, why has this happened? We know why. You've just made one bad decision after another bad decision. You haven't listened to God. You haven't looked for his voice. You've just done whatever you thought was best in your own eyes. In addition to that, you got overzealous. You killed and ravaged too many. You didn't listen to God. You're not following God. This is an entire mess. And then you've got the gall to stand before God and say, God, why has this happened? We do this too. Sometimes in our prayer lives, we say, God, how could this happen? And we don't first start with self-examination. Lord, forgive me for the ways I have contributed to the mess that I now stand before. I see this all the time in our church, in families and in friendships. We've got the sin of the garden all over again. Right after things go messy, what's the first thing we do? We go, it's their fault. What's the first thing we do in our marriages? It's their fault. What's the first thing we do when things go bad at work? Oh, it's my terrible boss. Meanwhile, you've been showing up late, not doing your work, and you leave that part out of the story conveniently when you tell your friends who join in with you on going, yeah, your boss is pretty terrible. We point the finger at others. And sometimes we have the, the, the courage to point it at God and say, God, how could you have let this happen? without any ability to examine ourselves. Israel is in a tough position. They now realize for the first time that this tribe of Benjamin is now nearly extinct. And oh, they made a promise. What was the promise? We won't be giving any of our daughters to them. Well, things get worse. They remember another promise, a conveniently remembered other promise. Verse 5, then the Israelites said, who from all the tribes of Israel have failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mitzpah was to be put to death. So they have a first oath, which is none of us are going to give any of our daughters over to the tribe of Benjamin. Hey, do you guys remember that other oath we made that says, hey, if you don't show up to fight, then we get to kill you? Yeah, we remember that oath. Okay, great. So then they decide that they, they look around and they realize that no one has shown up from the tribe of Jabesh Gilead. Sorry, from the city, not the tribe, the city of Jabesh Gilead. So Israel then weakened and wounded, sends 12,000 men to do justice, or as they call it, justice, but it's 
not justice at all. It has nothing to do with justice. It's just more violence. And they ravage Jabesh Gilead. They ravage it. And they take from this city 400 daughters, 400 girls who are all virgins. And they they take these 400 and they give these 400 over to the tribe of Benjamin, over to the 600 Benjamites. So that's going to solve their problem so that the tribe of Benjamin continues. Well, 400 is not 600. There's still 200 men who desire wives and to continue their lineage. Now, it's just important to note that that these women are not going on their own volition. They have witnessed their families be killed. They've witnessed their fathers and their brothers be killed, their friends. They've been taken from their land, and then they've been given into hand to marry someone that they've never met before. They've lost everything. This is a terrible solution. This is a not well-thought-out plan. So in verses 16 to 18, they get into more arguments. And they realize we're 200 women short. So in verses 19 through 21, they come up with a second solution. They go, look, there's the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem the south, uh, and south of Labona. So they instructed the Benjamites, the 200 left, they said, go and hide in the vineyards and watch What's going to happen? And watch, when the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, you're going to rush from the vineyards and each of you are going to seize one of these girls and you are going to take them to be your wife and then you can go back to your land in Benjamin. They come up with a new plan. When the local girls come out to dance, 200 men are going to steal them. You just, you just can't believe how bad things have gotten. Now, there's no recorded festival where God asks his people to dance in the vineyard. So it's sort of a strange, corrupted, pagan festival that we are witnessing. And it's another awful example of how they continue to make these promises and oaths that they fail to keep. They misuse God's name. They objectify these women. And if you're paying attention to the story, the mistreatment of this one concubine woman, which was, we all argue and believe, is horrific, leads to 600 women being stolen from their families. And they justify it. Before they even kidnap these women, Israel justifies it. In verse 22... They say, if any of the fathers or any of the brothers complain that we are stealing their sisters and their daughters, we're just going to say to them, do us the favor of helping them because we didn't get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you didn't give your daughters to them. You won't be guilty. We stole your daughters. You didn't give them. You're good. That's their logic. That's what they say. You're in the clear. We made an oath that you wouldn't give your daughters, but we didn't make an oath that we wouldn't steal them from you. They justify their terrible and awful behavior. It's done for Benjamin, therefore it's okay. 
They make these others do what they would refuse to do. And the abuse of this one leads to the abuse of so many. As Judges comes to a close, we see Israel completely socially bankrupt, complete and total social corruption. And the text ends in verses 23 and 25 by saying that Israel returned to their inheritance and rebuilt their towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to the tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. And then finally, verse 25, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Somehow, Israel had survived, and they returned to what's called their inheritance, the promise that God has given them. That land had still been given to them by God. And even though everything had fallen apart, even though they had made a mess of everything, even though in no way, shape, or form do they deserve anything, God had made a promise to them, and God always keeps his promises. They didn't deserve it, but his promise still stands. They don't deserve a future, but they still have one. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. As we close our time in Judges. Let me have just a few moments of your time with a few points I want to make before we move to the table together. Three quick things. First, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, you get chaos. The whole book of Judges is about this. God's people making it up as they go along, listening to themselves, failing to listen to what God has made clear. They are corrupted by the worship of other gods. They have no objective standard of how to orient their life. And the result of that is not a more free society. They, they don't get a more liberated society. They get more slavery. They get more oppression. Everything gets worse. A repeated phrase in our home when we are discerning what to do is these three words. By what standard? We should do this, we should do that. By what standard? People in the world making claims. I function in this world as a preacher. That's what I do. But I've realized that we've moved to a world where everyone is a preacher. We're all preaching all the time. We all use our social media and our platform and, our, and, our, and Facebook and Instagram. And everywhere we go, we're spouting our opinions, constantly telling people what they should or shouldn't do, which causes they should and shouldn't support, what things they should be about and which things they should reject. And the question that should always go through your mind are those three words, by what standard? Because the book of Judges shows you that if it's your standard, if you're just doing what is right in your own eyes, look out. I often tell my kids that we are living in a world that feels like it's making up everything as it goes along. And I teach my children that to be a Christian is to be standing on this 2,000-year-old battleship which has endured every storm that any culture has ever thrown at it as people continue to proclaim that it's on that ship that they have found true liberation. And my kids are often invited to step off that ship onto a dinghy boat made out of toothpicks two seconds ago. Come over here. We've got a brand new idea that's never been tried or tested. 
Come, believe this thing that no one's ever believed before. Come, you're safe over here. No, thank you. We are not going to be a people who are going to move quickly with the culture because we are a people who are going to stand on God and on his word. We don't follow the winds of culture. We don't make up the rules as we play them. We listen to and follow the word of God. We don't care if that makes us seem a little strange. We don't care if people throw words at us like, you guys are traditional, or you're a little old-fashioned, or you're a little out of style, or you're a little weird. We believe that God shows us how to be truly human. And his standard has liberated more people than the latest social fad ever will. And it has endured every cultural storm. So we'll pass on doing what you think is right. We'll rest on what God says instead. Secondly, even God's people can be corrupted if they abandon faithfulness to God's word. The church is supposed to be a city on a hill. We're supposed to shine brightly. People are supposed to see the way that we live and the way we love and the way that we serve one another. And they're supposed to see that something is different about us. We are called to be light to the nations. We are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We're called to proclaim to the world that hope is not found in some ambiguous future, but instead is found in the presence of our Heavenly Father. Jesus hung out with lots of sinners, but he didn't sin with them. And he didn't want to be like them. They wanted to be like him. It has become increasingly common for Christians to feel this sort of sense that if I'm not relevant enough or if I don't fit in enough that something's wrong with me, I reject that wholeheartedly. You are to love radically. You are to demonstrate the patience and love of God no matter how you're treated, but you are not to conform to the pattern of this world. And the renewing of your mind takes place by being in and with God through his holy word. Today, too many in the church are concerned with how to fit in with their friends than how to help their friends fit into the kingdom of God. Third, the presence of chaos does not mean the absence of God. The presence of chaos in your life does not mean the absence of God. For all of Israel's disobedience in Judges, God doesn't leave them. Sure, they left God. I mean, they have a little bit of religion, right? They sort of pray when things aren't right, and they, they weep when things are difficult, and they still make sacrifices, and they still make promises. The problem in, in the book of Judges is not that God's people never engage with God. The problem is that they reject God as their moral authority. All throughout the text, all throughout Judges, when it came to sex, when it came to marriage, when it comes to hospitality, when it comes to justice, when it comes to how to treat women, they did what was right in their own eyes, and that is why chaos happens. That is why their society is so corrupt. But God has not abandoned them. And he has not abandoned you if you are in Christ. Your life may be in complete chaos this morning. 
but that does not mean that God has abandoned you. Sure, God may allow you to experience the consequences of your actions. Sure, sometimes God will allow us to suffer and experience difficulty. Sure, he may give us over to the fruits of our labor. But even in Israel, as this book comes to a close, it is still their inheritance. And if you are in Christ, you still have an inheritance, a down payment from the Spirit entrusted to you that cannot be taken away from you and will not be taken away from you. Because while you may be unfaithful, your God is not. He still keeps his promises. So maybe you're discouraged. Take heart. Maybe your life is a mess. Maybe you've gotten yourself into an awful situation and you don't see any way out. And maybe you showed up this morning as a guest or a visitor carrying guilt and carrying shame. And maybe you're looking for peace with God and you think that the way to get peace with God is to somehow sort all your problems out. The only way to fix your mess is by first knowing that you can't and then turning to the only one who can. If you don't know Jesus, you can't fix your life. And so what you can do this morning is if you don't know Christ, you can receive him. He offers himself to you for the complete and total forgiveness of all that you have done. He paid for your sin. Your sin was not small. The consequences of your actions are not tiny. What happens in Israel is a picture of how sometimes half-truths and one thing leads to another, which leads to another, and things can snowball and escalate very quickly. And when we look at the magnitude of our sin, we say, Lord, how are you going to deal with this massive problem we have? And God said, I'm going to deal with it the, the way that I've always designed it to be dealt with. I'm going to send my son to die on the cross, and that on the cross he will take the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders, that all who would turn from their sin and believe in him would be forgiven and given new hearts and new lives. That is the gospel. And if you do not know the gospel, we pray that you would hear that and receive that for the first time this morning. But if you are Christian here this morning and you have lost your way, and I'm certain in a room like this, there are Christians in here who have lost their way. I want you to know that God keeps you in his hand and that he hasn't stopped working and that he hasn't given up on you. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. I don't care how messy things are right now. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion because he always keeps his promises. And he promises to make all things new in the end. Judges reminds us that the biggest problems facing our world today, our lives today, our families today, is that we do not, we do not cling, love, follow, obey, worship, celebrate, live in light of the God who made us for relationship with himself. And as we run from him, he pursues us because that's the kind of God he is. 
Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. Lord, give us eyes to see that at least a lot of the time, the messes that we find ourselves in are a result of our actions. God, I do pray this morning that there would be some of us who would recognize that just because they're in a difficult situation doesn't mean that they are the ones who have caused it. They may be experiencing difficulty at the hands of another's sin. So do, I do, Lord, I do pray that you would give people eyes to see the truth and not lies. But give us the courage to face ourselves again. Give us the courage to face how tempting it can be for us to want to go along with however things go in the world. Give us eyes to see how tempting it is for us to want to fit in rather than to help people fit into your kingdom. And Lord, I pray more than all, more than anything, that we would see you as our God and as our King, as our Lord and as our Savior, and that we would not pursue what we think is right in our own eyes, but we would declare that true hope and true freedom is found in recognizing that we are not our own, but that we were bought at a price that Christ purchased us for himself, that we have become creations of yours who become children of yours because you adopt us into your family. And sure, some of us are wayward children. Some of us are prodigal. Some of us are wandering. But Lord, once you make us your child, we are your child. And so Lord, we do ask that you would correct us, yes, But more than anything, we ask that you would draw us in again to your presence. That there we would experience the embrace of you, our loving Father. We would hear you proclaim over us that we are forgiven. We are forgiven, that that is cleansed, that it's dealt with, that it's paid for, that it's finished. We would know the beauty of being totally washed. And we would experience the joy of delighting in our salvation. And in following you faithfully with a life of gratitude, responding to all that you have done for us. Lord, we do pray for our country, for our nation, for our neighbors. We pray for those who are making up life as they go along and who are suffering because of it. Would you help us to be ambassadors of reconciliation in their lives? Would you help us to be light in their lives? Would you help us point them to you? For it is our desire that they would know you. Because in knowing you, that is where life is found. So help us to know you. Help us to grow. Help us to serve those that you place in our lives. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you. Amen.